Hi, I'm Natalia, and you're listening to Advanced Copy, a podcast for independent thinkers in fashion. In this episode, we're welcoming Art as University teachers Hanka Vandervoort and Chet Buchter, who discussed their recent open source paper beautifully titled A Fruiting Body of Collective Labour, Working Towards a De-Hierarchized System for Fashion Education. The document looks to the collaborative world of fungi and mycelium networks to find inspiration for more de-hierarchized models of fashion education. In this wide-reaching conversation, we'll first hear about Hanka and Chet's individual journeys to becoming fashion educators, their exploration of fashion outside of capitalist systems, and what led them to couple mycelium networks with fashion education. We'll then learn how writing the paper helped them decentralize parts of the Masters in Critical Fashion Practices course and discuss how fashion designers, entrepreneurs, and also practitioners can attempt to do the same. So no matter how much you already know about the many superpowers of fungi and mycelium, this conversation will actually further your thinking about problem solving in general. And also, it will inspire you to explore community building in fashion from completely different angles. So make sure to check out the link to the publicly available paper, which we're discussing in today's episode, which you will find in the notes section of this podcast. And if you wish to dive even deeper into any of the references which we're mentioning in this conversation, I've made sure to also put them in the notes section. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I absolutely loved hosting Chet and Hanka. Welcome to the Advanced Copy Podcast, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for the invite, Natalia. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Well, I really can't wait to get into this. It's quite maybe more of an unusual topic for us in Advanced Copy, so it's education in the fashion industry, but so, so important. And yeah, I just can't wait to learn about what you're doing. So first of all, for our guests, I would love to hear you introduce yourselves, who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing. So a very classic question. And perhaps Chet, if you don't mind, starting off first. Yeah, thank you, Natalia. So my name is Chet Buchter. I'm from the Netherlands. I live in a small town in the south of the Netherlands, in very close to the forest, which is very nice. But I'm the head of program of Master Critical Fashion Practices at Artes uh, University of the Arts in Arnhem. Before that, I also worked at the program as a freelance tutor and teacher. And before that, I graduated from the program. So I've been with the program for quite a few years now in many different roles. And I graduated before as a fashion designer from Art Academy in Utrecht also in the Netherlands. Besides my work with critical fashion practices, I also have my own practice, Bodies Making Meaning, where I work with and around 
the body within the constraints of industrial fashion. So how industrial fashion treats the body, how it gives meaning to bodies and how we can use our bodies to regain agency over these representations. Wow, that sounds very interesting. And I, I love the kind of multiple angles that you're also bringing into your practice at Art Ez. What was your personal path to deciding on this industry as a young person when you were making that decision? I always like to make the joke that I have, like my journey towards fashion was the very typical one of dreaming to become like Victor and Rolf or any other big Dutch fashion designer. But I very quickly, during my studies, found out that this wasn't necessarily the path that was for me. It comes from this very fantasy-rich, dreamlike idea of fashion, but I very quickly found out that it's not what I value so much in fashion. It's more the many different layers that are underneath these star designers and collections and like the many possibilities garments bring in interacting with other people and building relationships with other people. Thank you for sharing that. And Hanka, how about you? Where are you from and what was your journey in fashion and to what you're doing now? Yeah, good question. So my name is Hanka van der Voet. I live in Amsterdam and I teach at Artes as well at the Master Critical Fashion Practices and have been there for quite a while. I have, uh, I'm not trained as a fashion designer, so I think that's an important thing to say. I have a bachelor and master's in cultural studies with a focus on media studies. And then I actually did the critical fashion programs as well later on after working as an editor at Glam Club magazine for a while. Back then it was still called fashion strategy. And I graduated there with a specialization in fashion curation. I'm a lecturer in artistic research currently at the MA Critical Fashion Practices. I'm a researcher for the Artist Fashion Professorship, which you might know from the publication Dissolving the Ego. And I have my own practice, which revolves around critical fashion publishing. I make press and fold notes on making and doing fashion. I initiated the Warehouse Review, which is published by the platform Forum Warehouse, a place for closing context, which I'm one of the founders, together with Femke de Vries and Elisa van Jolen. And together with Femke de Vries, I also created the workshop and magazine, or zine, more-ish, um, a magazine reader, which is about the deconstruction and reconstruction of a mainstream fashion magazine. For those who are not familiar, who are listening to so the publications that you just mentioned, I believe... Press and Fold, isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Warehouse Review. And the last one which you just said was the... A Magazine Reader. A Magazine Reader, exactly. I don't have the last one, but I, I've seen the others and I have the Warehouse Review. But I will link them up on the podcast because I think they're like an essential read. They're so wonderful at being very concise. It's <laughs> nice to hear. And very punchy. It's just like one of those things you can pick up and read very quickly. It's just a lot of really, really progressive thinking in fashion. And it really like gets your creative juices flowing and like just thinking completely different ways about the industry. So I will link them up. And I think it's really important to get them out there to as many people working in the industry as possible. 
And on that similar question, as I proposed to chat there, how did you choose to then kind of specialize in fashion after studying, I believe you said cultural studies? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, I never dreamt about being a fashion designer. That was just not in it for me because I'm not creative in that way. I've always been a, a voracious reader of, and I do not discriminate. I will read anything, whether it's magazines or books or theory. I had an older sister growing up and Micah and older sisters are kind of magical in the way that they can show you things that you're not maybe ready for yet or don't know about yet. She was really into to music and at that time, like Britpop and rave culture was a thing. And she would buy ID in the face. And that was like my first consumption of like media, fashion media, where it was maybe more lifestyle. But I think that was like kind of an era in fashion. It was also a big change going around in terms of the rise of more independent and designers and labels. And it was before like fashion started to be dominated by big luxury conglomerates like LVMH and the Gucci group, Prada, etc. And I was basically, I think, more into pop music and pop culture than fashion. But I started seeing like this interesting coming together of like music, fashion, film, photography. That was just really exciting to me. And, and I think that basically was like looking for a different representation of women, female pop stars. And that really spoke to me. So that was maybe my first introduction, but then I never thought like you can have a job in fashion and not be a fashion designer. Then I actually worked for a couple of years as a music journalist, which I then quickly discovered that it's not, it's not a nice industry. And then I came across the course at Artes and the work of Jose Teunissen, who was the first fashion professor at Artes. And I, I started seeing like the possibility of like merging theory with fashion practice so that's kind of where I started on a practical level. For our listeners to actually understand what is art as I realized as we're talking about it so comfortably could you tell us a little bit more about art as as a university or an educational platform? Art is a, an art school it's one of the biggest art schools in the Netherlands Chet mentioned Victor and Rolf, for example. So they did the bachelor's program there. Alexander van Slobo, which is a well-known Dutch designer, kind of like the, the father of what we call Dutch design, Dutch fashion design. A lot of designers come from there. Master Fashion Strategy started from like a course you could do if you graduated as a fashion designer and then was looking to, to develop like more a strategic perspective on your practice. So more business and industry oriented. And over the years, it's been evolving into something completely different, like into the master critical fashion practices. Chet and I were part of like this um, change. And it's also the thing that maybe prompted us or helped us in like thinking through fashion education and what it actually should be rather than what it is at the moment. Now that we have this introduction to Ardez, it brings us really nicely into the actual topic of the conversation today, which is why I reached out to you both. It's because I think I saw you post on Instagram about this new publicly available paper that you guys published, which is called 
a fruiting body of collective labor working towards a de-hierarchized system for fashion education. This is a PDF, and again, I'll link it up in the podcast because it's just a really, really important piece of work for the fashion industry, I think. And that's what we're going to get into now. I was wondering maybe if Chet, if you don't mind starting by telling us actually, maybe giving us the top line of like, what are you exploring in this document and where it even came from, where this idea came from? I think someone asked us this questions also recently and we didn't really have a concrete answer as what the exact moment or like spark was. I think as Hanka said before, it sort of coincided with working towards a new course vision for the master, which we worked on with our team. We both felt sort of the need to bring this out into the world or like to to put this in the context of other fashion educational aspects or fashion education philosophers somewhere in that world. So I think what is what was really nice or really interesting in writing this paper is that it really it brought together a lot of sort of unsaid things or like implicit knowledge within the course and within the team of the course and really made it explicit and gave us something to stand for or to use as a tool to really show the world and then mostly the the fashion educational context what this course is about. Also, for context, there were some scandals, so to speak. Well, scandals is maybe putting it mildly. There were some terrible, terrible incidences that happened within the arts education, fashion education system in the Netherlands, where abuse from both students, teachers, mentors came to light within the Royal Academy of Art in Den Haag, The Hague, and also at the Amsterdam Fashion Institute in Amsterdam. And around that period, also on Instagram, an account appeared that called Call Out Dutch Art Institutions, where people could anonymously share their stories with abuse, racism, etc. that they had experienced. It was really a shitstorm for a moment. And I think it also happened in the period of COVID, lockdowns, as well as the Black Lives Matter movement coming to the fore. And I think all these things together really made us realize how fucked the arts education and in specific also fashion education system is and how much abuse of power is going on. Both Chet and me also have our own stories. And like, yeah, everyone has a story and we laugh about it now. Like we kind of love our trauma away, but some of them are really not funny at all. And yeah, super tragic once you discover it's basically systemic. That was kind of the context in which, yeah, we were experiencing and like of course we work together but we also have like a lot of informal conversations outside of work and Chet and I do a lot of sharing of memes to express our frustration and then it seemed like proper to to put stuff into words as well and to share it to publish it in a way like you could say yes or no like I think it's quite honorable that you as an institution have decided to actually 
look into this and address it and continue addressing it instead of hoping that the problem will go away. Do you mind summarizing what a fruiting body of collective labor is all about? Because it really goes like so far in only less than actually 20 pages of text. Yeah, so I'm going to try. <laughs> so I think what this paper tries to do is to provide a metaphor for de-hierarchizing fashion design education through the mycorrhizal network or through the mycelial network. And what we do in the paper is that we make connections, which is not something new, it has been done before, between these mycelial networks, and most specifically mycorrhizal or lichen symbiotic networks, and make connections between those and sort of distributed networks or de-hierarchized ways of sharing information. Because what is quite interesting in this whole fungi story is that these fungi networks are very much capable of de-hierarchizing the way in which they are structured. And if you sort of put that network over fashion design education, it gives you a lot of possibilities to do the same and not putting one person on top of this network, but instead seeing every player within the network as an important node or like a, like a connection point where many different threads come together and then go on. And then what is added to that is that because of this de-hierarchized approach, you open up your sort of pedagogic view on design education to a lot of very relevant and important perspectives that are, are quite often ignored within fashion design. So that's this whole decolonized or anti-capitalist approach that is also quite important in this paper. So we sort of move from the idea of the mycelial network as a sort of new foundation for fashion design education into how then this new foundation can lead to the application of, for example, anti-capitalist or decolonial perspectives within fashion design education. What you're discussing is also that is quite of the moment, I think. It's kind of part of pop culture psyche, I would say. There's just been a wonderful influx of fresh literature, exhibitions, documentaries and articles discussing the application of these ideas uh, which exist in natural systems to solving a really wide variety of problems that we have in the world in general. And I think thanks to things like Netflix documentaries and New York Times articles, people working in the industry are also talking about mushrooms. They are, if we're being completely honest, I think they are experimenting with mushrooms, they're microdosing and, you know, they're using them also for graphics. And for me, the question that I'm really interested in in all of this is what else can we learn from nature above superficial experimentation or use of imagery or anecdotal kind of references, what can we actually use in fashion? Because there is so much more we can learn from these systems that exist in nature. And back to what you've written about in A Fruit and Body, um, in that case, in the case of the paper, you looked specifically at the networks of different types of fungi. So could you please explain 
in layman's terms, if that's possible, what they are? One of the most important ones is the mycorrhizal network. So the mycorrhiza is a sort of specific subgenome of fungi. And those are the fungi that we all know about that are in between the roots in forests, for example. So that's those are the fungi that make sure that trees in a forest can talk to each other in that sense. And then you have the lichen, which are more, uh, yeah, we all know lichen. It's one of the most prolific organisms within the world. There is only one English translation, lichen, but it's the greenish stuff, for example, that is on trees in the, in the forest. And these are sort of a symbiosis between plants and fungi or algae and fungi, for example. So they all have this sort of symbiotic approach of collective labor and working together to establish their networks and to establish their presence. How did you go about actually researching and then bringing the paper together? And what is it? What are the key things that you discuss in it? The actual writing of the paper was like a really organic progression of conversations we had within the team and then also between Chet and myself. Both Chet and I spent quite a bit of time on Instagram. I've talked about sharing memes before, which is kind of our love language. But also, like you, you say, like mushrooms are of the moment, like people are talking about fungi, whether it is through like microdosing or as a representation on garments or as a material, because there is also lots of experiments there. So I saw, of course, like my algorithm was at a certain point feeding me fungi. I don't know how it works, but it was there, obviously. And I had read this book, The Mushroom at the End of the World by Anna Lohenhauptzing, which was also yeah, a really well-written book about like a specific type of mushroom and the hidden economy behind it and how it can like provide a, a perspective on like living on what she calls capitalist ruins. And I think like that's an important point to make that Chet and I like firmly believe that capitalism is not going to solve our problems. So thinking within capitalism with capitalism is not going to be helpful in tackling problems such as racism, climate disaster, etc. We both are grounded in like anti-capitalist thought. So we were having these discussions and I got interested more and more in fungi. We started exchanging like images, like, oh, this one's so pretty, that one that one's looks great. And did you know fungi can actually make music? So there's these videos on YouTube where you can see them create sounds. I saw this open call for a symposium on fashion education. And I was like, yeah, let's let's just write this paper. We have all this experience Within education, we have our own experiences. We have like such a rich community of people who've been sharing stuff. The writing wasn't even like a question of doing lots of research. I think this is one of the easiest things I've ever written. It was just there all of a sudden. It was the first time we also, we did something together. It felt almost like these fungi were doing it for us. It became this very, as Hanka said, organic collection of Sources And I think what's also made it that it's so strongly grounded, both in our personal experiences and personal traumas, but also in the praxis of the course. As teachers within an institution like Ahtes University, 
Could you talk to us about the importance of dehierarchization of fashion education? We have to acknowledge that hierarchies exist. Within fashion educations, we are the teachers. We are going to have to like give that framework for assessing students. We are going to be the ones doing the assessing, even though we've given students a more active role within it. There's always going to be some structure within which institutional education is going to function. Of course, you can also have like lots of, and that's also what Chad and I do in our own practice, like have more like self-organized forms of education through giving workshops, etc. But we function within the institution that is our thesis. And within that institution, we have to follow certain structures. We try to show with this paper that there are possibilities to at least create some awareness of what these structures are and how to create some kind of symbiosis or like a coming together within that structure. Do you mind giving us some more like hands-on examples of how part of the course or workshop might look like when we use this metaphor of a mycelium network instead of a hierarchy in the education system? How does that look for you as educators and for your students as maybe as an example of a class or workshop or something like this? I think it's important to say that this project and our practices and also our teachings are rooted in like anti-capitalist thought and the idea that like capitalism will not <laughs> better your life. Definitely not. Reframing this course, we decided to specifically position it outside of industrial practice. And that's also where our own artistic practices are are situated. And that means that we don't cater to or position ourselves within the fashion industry because there are so many other types of fashion that don't exist within the fashion industry that need attention. And I think this is the ground on which we built our educational program and also our own practice. So basically that informs all our teachings and, and workshops. As Hanka says, this anti-capitalist or non-industrial approach is sort of seminal to each aspect of the course and the classes that are given, but also in how assessments are made. So assessments are not built upon, is a project going to be viable within the fashion industry, which is most often the most important assessment within fashion education. And what I think is another very important aspect is how we have structured our way of teaching and interacting with our students or participants, as we try to call them, because it's one of the ways to sort of get past this teacher-student hierarchy, which is one of the, actually one of the easiest hierarchies to dehierarchize if you just start calling yourself differently and behave in a different way. What we try to do within the course is to really build or grow this learning community and to make this learning community a very safe way of participants interacting with the course. One of the most concrete examples is that we have at least, I think, three or four moments during the year where we collect feedback. So direct feedback from participants on the course, and not just feedback at the end, but also while they are studying. And we try to also really employ this feedback and to put this feedback into practice and make sure that participants can share with us 
how they are feeling within the course, within their educational process, and also this really seriously. So to do something with it. Connected to this is like certain roles we have created within the course. Like it's quite regular or normal to have like a group coach or like a like a study trajectory mentor. But in our case, we really try to make this person a sort of spokesperson for the participants and like a bridge between the still existing hierarchy of assessors and people being assessed. So we really have tried to find ways for these fungal-inspired distributed networks to find a place within the educational approach. Another concrete thing is that we don't do grading. So there's no grades for your projects or like an assessment moments. You either pass or you don't. And through like extensive feedback, we do give clear like what work still needs to be done. We're very like expressive in what's good. So we're used to feedback as like, or being reviewed as like being critiqued. So we kind of like decided to change that whole dynamic. And that was one of the most interesting things to experience, like how, how you are as a student. And I think I had it myself as well, how much you're geared towards like being graded and like getting validation from a grade. That was like a really interesting dynamic that we're still still have like learning moments and definitely unlearning moments within that. And I think also peer-to-peer feedback and reviewing is also a really important part of the process. So students reviewing each other's work and giving each other feedback. And I think ultimately this is such a valuable tool because they know each other best. They are together like all the time, working all the time. We really found that they... By giving feedback, having to give feedback, they also learn to look inward within themselves, what's working and what's not. These are some small things that we do. And like within concrete assignments, we do a lot of collaborative work. What we hear so much from students that when they come from bachelor's, specifically fashion design bachelors, they are so used to working individually, like being assessed individually. But... Once you graduate and like start your practice, you don't do anything alone. It's ridiculous that you have to like, in the case of a fashion designer, like design, make the patterns, make the garments. That just doesn't happen. And then I just wanted to pick up also on what chat on what you said a little bit earlier about the importance of language and how you're addressing students as participants as one example of that importance. So a lot of our listeners work in fashion and maybe some want to, you know, improve their working conditions or explore even more purposeful approaches to collaborating in general. So do you think that changing classical hierarchical job titles in fashion, such as manager, director, intern, assistant, and so on, could that help to dismantle the hierarchies existing in the fashion industry? What is more important is a systemic change then. So I think the change of titles would come from that, but it's what needs to happen first is like a very abrupt moving away from this idea that's within any fashion brand or whether independent or not, there's never only one person that is the 
genius, this team with all these names and functions is what makes this brand work. It's not like the star designer is doing all of those things by themselves. So I think before even giving it new names, it would mean that this whole paradigm needs to be shaken up. If you look at these documentaries, for example, where they then show all the uh, petit men from the atelier, like even there, they sort of infantilize these people as sort of these sort of mystical fairy-like beings that then just suddenly they have created the whole couture collection, but they keep giving it this sort of glossy layer. They keep on mystifying these very living people. And then when they move from their haute couture to their ready-to-wear or to their even further away from their haute couture, like then suddenly the people that make these clothes are not these mystical atelier ladies who have their white coats. A lot of brands try to show these people more, but it is still a question like, why do they do this and in what way? And I think just changing the titles will not change anything because it will just further mystify the hierarchy that is there, make it seem like it is something you should strive for as a fashion designer. Yeah, the language needs to represent something tangible because otherwise it's just branding or like greenwashing. The next thing I wanted to explore is how perhaps entrepreneurs in conscious fashion companies who want to be more conscious and maybe try to tackle a lot of the problems in the industry. I was curious to find out what kind of tools or advice from your learnings or from your thinking in this mycelial type of way, if there's anything that you think they could learn from this education aspect, what can they maybe apply to their ways of working? If they're already conscious if they're already trying to kind of see how they could do better as designers or just it's kind of a tricky question I guess because of course as you said as long as you're in the capitalist system you can't kind of address that but I was still curious to find out if you had any kind of useful tips or ways of thinking. Language is super important but it does need to represent like concrete action And for example, there's a lot of talk about sustainable fashion, but honestly, fashion is never going to be sustainable. Like the most sustainable thing is to not make and buy fashion. We have enough clothes already going around for like, we can live off this clothing production for years and years if we just take time to repair stuff, hand stuff down, share garments that don't fit you anymore with other people. It's not realistic to, to not like stop production altogether, but I think it's important to think like the afterlife of a garment and maybe avoid the word sustainable, but be like transparent in the actions that you are taking and make the backside visible. Who is making the garments? Are they well paid? Can they make a living off their salary, etc.? I think those are some really important steps to take. And also with regards to decolonizing fashion i think a lot of people talk the talk but don't walk the walk in that sense so that's super important as well if you talk in general about making new systems and functioning within or outside of capitalism there are so many models that you can think of for example as a work as a cooperative so that means 
sharing resources, but also sharing profit in that sense. There are several ways in which you can work, where you can work collaboratively, share burden collaboratively, but also deal with profit collaboratively. And I think those are really interesting models to look into. And I would always say self-organize and find your peers because it's useless in doing things alone. That's just not the reality of living. And that's also something we pointed out in the paper. We're all multi-species being, if you look at the fungi that exist in and on our bodies. I think what's also important to realize is even though we have a very anti-capitalist perspective, we are also both still living within capitalism because it's inescapable. Yeah. Um, so it is an inescapable system for I now. Would, I yeah. would say yeah, for yeah. now. There are definitely alternatives that, that are worth looking into. If you try to live by those alternatives and also try to build your business practice or like your design practice around this, I think that can give you more than just an ethical company. It can also sort of help you to find your, your place within the world and connections to other people. And by focusing, for example, so much on collaboration or cooperative ways of working together, it opens up your world to a lot of extremely valuable perspectives and besides from the whole business aspect i think also like on an interpersonal level it can give you a lot especially when for example dealing with trauma from education or all of my friends who went to art academy we all have the same trauma but by finding each other and collaborating it really helps us to deal with this in quite a healthy manner i would say so that's also an advice I would give people. Like, don't try to continue working in the way that you were taught, but really try to solve this by finding others that have had the same issues and look how you can move beyond them collaboratively or collectively. I think that's really wonderfully put there in a more kind of philosophical way, which I think is very, very important. And as you spoke about, community building, I think it's really important to point out the real value in building real communities, not marketing communities, not just influencers, but actually really helping each other and having these conversations, not feeling like you're alone if you're trying to tackle some of these problems or you have, as you said, like anxiety or trauma from education or previous jobs. There's so much of this where I'm sure you also have friends and colleagues who come out of very, very toxic environments. And you literally have to unlearn or detach yourself from those previous experiences to realize that that was not normal because you're almost bullied into thinking that certain behavior and structures are normal, which they're not and shouldn't be normalized. I have two last questions. So they're more dreamy, as I like to say. I like to have these moments of more utopian thinking. Do you mind just sharing your thoughts on how you imagine a world of multiple fashion systems, which is also something you explore in the paper, this idea of by decentralizing, dehierarchizing the fashion industry, it's not about having another system that replaces it. It's about having multiple systems or multiple universes of fashion. Could you give us some examples of what you would like to see? Well, actually, there are already existing multiple fashion systems. It's just that we lack the acknowledgement of them perhaps because when we say fashion we think about industrial fashion because that's what we've been fed through for example fashion media mainstream fashion magazines fashion is 
industrial fashion, fashion that is in the, on the high street shops, on the catwalk, in the museum, etc. Those are the forms of fashion we are familiar with. But I think there's also self-made fashion. That's also a system in itself. There's so many people making their own garments. There is repairing fashion, which is also a whole ecology up onto itself. There is critical fashion practice, which is something that Chet and I practice and that is practiced within our master's program, which is kind of like a combination of outside the system fashion slash scholarship slash activism. And I think by talking about these other forms of fashion within our education, within our program, within our practices, within the publications we make. Yeah, we're already trying to create space for those and talk about those. And I think they're kind of like kept in the dark by mainstream fashion media because they don't function within a capitalist or like economic model of profit. And I think that's a pity because they're just as valuable or even more valuable to think through and learn. That will be my on on different kind of fashion systems. And it's just hoping that through discussing all these alternative or viable different kinds, maybe not viable in the economic sense, but viable as like healthy and fun and generous, maybe we can like reduce the power and the dominance of the industrial fashion system. Yeah, I love that. That's really an optimistic and positive viewpoint and I think you're completely right about yeah about celebrating these makers and all these other forms of fashion too and Chet what are your thoughts? My sort of dream scenario is indeed sort of continuing what is already happening now so shedding light on these existing multiplicity of fashion systems but for me personally I would really love to see the body regaining its power over fashion or like taking back what has been taken away from yeah non-normative bodies by fashion the thing that is one of the most toxic things fashion has done is creating this idea that sort of this ongoing mistreatment of bodies is normal in all aspects so both in exploitative labor but also in exploitative representations of bodies within the many different facets of fashion. And I think for that, what we really need to do is self-organize and create these new spaces for these bodies. That's also what I try to do in my own practice. And something that I've lately been really interested in as a sort of multiple, like one of these fashion systems is a system where self-organization, but mostly like allowing for this naivety of just doing is becoming very interesting to me and i'm working on it with two other practitioners now we all come from art academy and we all have very nostalgic feelings about these moments during our education where there was no expectations like where you were just doing and i think that's a way of doing fashion that is becoming quite interesting to me again it sort of fits within this idea of the mycelial network again, like giving yourself all possibilities. So not restricting yourself by a certain concept or goal or profit or funding or whatever. So just, it's a very utopian 
fashion system, but it's one that I've been very interested in lately, I must say. Mm. No, it's wonderful. And I think, thank you for highlighting this idea of being aware and very present in the process of making fashion or of designing even, or maybe even inspiration. The process has been cut, unfortunately, to such a short time that it's simply not possible to be present for most people. And I think that's really, really important to bring that back to like make that process so much longer and be present. And I think that's where, as you said, true creativity or creativity that's true to the person making it or the group making it, that's where it can really blossom. But it needs time and it needs attention, which we're not giving (laughs) in a capitalist system at least. And final, final question before I let you go. I was really curious to find out after this kind of really deep philosophical academic conversation, what companies or maybe individuals in fashion or even the wider creative world in general inspire you and drive you and your work further? It's maybe a cliche answer, but I'm just super excited being surrounded by, by, by the students, participants in our program. And I think specifically, like giving, given the circumstances which are truly not good for like Gen Z and younger people, if we look at the state of the world today. So I think it's, it's really courageous to decide to go to art school, uh, do a master's or like do a, a humanities or like liberal arts degree. Job market perspectives. What even is a job market? What are you graduating into? It's really dire out there. And I think, yeah, to decide to pursue these kinds of degrees give me a sense of hope. And I have to say, like in general, Gen Z is really a generation that would give me hope for the future because they're super hands-on, that whole younger generation. It's kind of cool, actually. Yeah, I have to say again that I agree with Hanka. It's uh, really interesting to see the many perspectives and practices that are growing within our own course not just now, but also from alumni or people that are connected to the course. I think they all do show that it it is possible, essentially, to still have this practice. So I would say that those people are also giving me hope. There is a possibility for these practices to exist and to thrive, essentially, together. Yeah, it sounds like something really exciting on the horizon and it must be so nice to also be part of a group with other people who are constantly, hopefully pushing each other a bit further in uh, imagining different ways, more positive ways of existing in fashion. Well, thank you so much for kind of giving us insight into your work and into A Fruiting Body of Collective Labour that you wrote. Again, we'll link up as many resources as we mentioned to try to share them with all of our listeners and yeah I'm just wishing you a lot a lot of luck and I'm so excited to see the kind of thinkers that will come out from the course and that optimism spreading and I have no doubt that it will well thanks so much for the invite Natalia it was really uh, a pleasure to yeah talk more in depth about the topic and we hope through this conversation it will reach more people get more people to thinking about alternative ways to to practice fashion and practice fashion education. To keep our network growing. 
Yeah, come join the Mycelial Network. I love that. Yes, please. I'm already in. We just made a new node. So let's make some more. Thank you for listening to this episode of Advanced Copy. We believe in sharing practical information to help create a healthy world of independent fashion. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram to find more pragmatic stories of how to get there. See you next time.